Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. We get a recap on the ending of round one of Marshmallow Madness and some latest science about these animals. Now, different types of creatures will behave differently when encountering a predator, and exactly what happens to a moose in the middle of the tundra in winter is an interesting case. Plus, we find out about what happens with repellent smells and how that actuates different parts of creatures' brains and sea otters, and how they are using archaeological methods to analyse their tool use. We begin this week with a brief recap of 2019 Marshmallow Madness. Now, a reminder, this is an event organised by Professor Katie Hind from Arizona State University. Head over to mammalsuck.blogspot.com or check out March Mammal Madness Let's Go on Facebook or Twitter to get more information. Now, into the recap and this week's science stories. March Mammal Madness kicked off this week and, as always, round one was filled with upsets and surprises. Of course, things don't always go to plan, and the seeding in the tournament is merely an indication. But as the event organiser, Professor Katie Hind, points out, well, all these animals exist in an ecosystem, and although the tournament is structured like a one-on-one bout, that's not necessarily always the case. For example, several creatures were displaced by other animals around them, or in the event of some unfortunate creatures, like the peccary, shot by hunters as their humans were invading the space. Or maybe like the sea otter, which was chomped down on by an orca. And this goes to show that actual animals, places and ecosystems is a very complex thing. A lot of other creatures around them either displace, disrupt or change. And simply trying to understand one animal's place, or in this case two, in an ecosystem on its own is quite difficult. You really have to look at the bigger picture. But what did that mean for people's brackets? I mean, in most part in the jump-jump division, things sort of went as planned. Tigers rock wallabies, armadillos, all of these major creatures made it through. But there was one big upset, and that is, of course, with the large-horned markhor. Well, the markhor looked like a pretty pointy goat, more or less, but the problem was it came up against the streak tenric. And a streak tenric, a basically small spiny creature, was able to put its detachable spines and lob them directly into the large nose of the markhor ruling it out. And that was a pretty substantive upset because that was effectively seed number two, the marker being defeated by seed number 15. On the other side of the division, in the Waterfalls division, the other round in this week, most of that went as planned, except with the major upset of the white-lipped herd of peccaries, small pig-like creatures. Whilst they foraged through the forest, the Rakali, a misplaced Australian creature, was actually not able to hide from the hunters that came and invaded the peccary's space. That led to a reasonable 4 versus 13 upset, otherwise more or less progressed down the chain as one would expect based on the seeding. The next week will feature the category and the tag team division, so pay attention to that. But now we're going to turn our attention to some of the unusual stories, and some research based on a similar concept. For example, one interesting part of the waterfall division was, of course, the crab-eating fox versus the moon rat. The crab-eating fox normally chomps down on crustaceans in the Caribbean area, but the moon rat managed to steal the den of the crab-eating fox, and given its repellent scent, turned off the fox from its meal and its den, forcing the fox to flee by being purely so repulsive. 
Now that seems like a pretty amazing survival strategy, unorthodox to be sure, but it actually is one that's not uncommonly used. So we're going to turn our attention now to some research about repellent odours and how different creatures use those to ward off predators. strong smell can trigger almost an involuntary response. In the case of the crab-eating fox, the pungent odour of the moon rat was enough to scare it away. But you could also, likewise, be driven away by a really bad smelling smell that sort of lingers in the air and sticks with you and change your entire behaviour. Likewise, you can be drawn in by a really sweet smelling smell. For example, perhaps the smell of hot buttered popcorn, which one of the March Mammal Madness competitors, the Binturong, the bear cat, will actually have. But one of the things to keep in mind is that when you have two different smells hitting you at the same time, your brain doesn't necessarily know how to respond. An example of which is this really strong smelling fruit like the durian. It smells sweet, but at the same time, to some people, can smell absolutely abhorrently disgusting. And yet, people eat them, and the taste is quite good. Your brain is being bombarded with these two conflicting signals, which are triggering two very different responses inside your body. And that's what researchers from the Max Planck Institute for Chemical Ecology have been digging into. This research led by Silky Sachs and Marcus Snarden have been trying to piece together what exactly is going on inside the brains of Drosophila when they're exposed to two different and conflicting and strong odours. Now these researchers in a large research grouping also involving Ahab Muhammad have been trying to dig into what's going on in the Drosophila brain when it smells different odours for a long time now. They've done a number of different research showing that the olfactory channels that respond to different attractive scents are actually using different parts than those that respond by repellent scents. So they know that inside the Drosophila brain, the fruit fly, the vinegar fly, they can see that they're actually different areas of the brain being activated for different types of scents. They've also seen that two pleasant odours being smelt together at the same time actually reinforce each other in certain areas of the neural circuits of the brain, which also makes it more attractive and changes some neurological behaviour. But what happens when you get two polar opposite smells bombarding your brain at once? And that's what the researchers really tried to answer. They wanted to get a picture of what a brain would do and figure out what that behaviour that would lead to. And one of the reasons why they're studying this in Drosophila is that, okay, well, the Drosophila is really well understood from a genetic basis, and it's often used for a lot of studies like this. But not only that, the neural mechanisms are relatively similar, at least in some small way, in that they involve certain types of spheres of neurons, the olfactory bulbs. Now, what they would like to do is you forecast this and apply it to the olfactory bulb of mammals, including us humans, to help us understand how our brain works. But you studied in the Drosophila in the first place because we can breed them really, really quickly and we know a lot about their genetics and they're incredibly simple. So making changes and analysing them is incredibly straightforward, which is why they were using Drosophila for this case. So what the scientists did is they exposed this vinegar fruit fly, the Drosophila melangaster, to an artificial odour mixture. And they varied the ratios in this odour mixture to give it some attractive and some repellent odour in sets of defined ratios to really get a broad spectrum and understand exactly what happens inside the brain when each of those are smelled. They then analysed the brain activity when these fruit flies were actually smelling the odour. 
And that was pretty interesting. They used functional limiting techniques to try and identify the specific neuronal mechanisms going on in the olfactory system of the fruit fly. And what they found is pretty interesting. Now inside the fly's brain, it's of course its olfactory center, and then Inside the olfactory center is a whole bunch of different regions. Some of them are spherical functional units like glomeruli. And there are actually specific functional units for attractive sense and processing the attractive odors and others for processing repellent specific ones. And what they noticed is when the flies smelled an attractive scent, well, a certain region, one glomeruli that was responding to attractive scents started to send signals and actually sent some inhibitory signals all the way over to the repellent processing glomeruli. This is a pretty interesting result because it shows that the fly's brain and its olfactory center is actually processing the scent and saying, okay, look, this is actually a, an attractive scent, a scent we like. Don't worry if it, you know, turn off the disgusting, the repellent specific receptors. Just turn those off for a little bit because, you know, we found an attractive scent. But what they found was some pretty odd examples as well. Take, for example, the typical smell of toxic bacteria or mold known as jismin. Now, jasmine is recognized in the fly brain by only one receptor type, and thus a really, really specific glomeruli is actually activated. That means that that jasmine glomeruli has no strong interaction with other glomeruli around it, and therefore can't send inhibiting signals. This kind of specialized pathways with linked responses is also noticed to be involved in sex pheromones, carbon dioxide, and other type of specific antiviral cells inside the fly. So these scents inside the fly's brain are triggering a whole bunch of complicated responses. And the olfactory bulb exists in mammals as well and humans for that matter. And studying and understanding how it works in the fly's brain is quite interesting to apply to humans. It does go a long way to show how actually smelling a sweet or attractive scent can actually turn off other parts of your brain to make you forget or ignore other types of scents associated with it. If you just smell them on the own, you wouldn't have the same response. But it's not universal because you actually still need to process each individual type of scent from the chemical reaction perspective. This is some great work from the Max Planck Institute, from the research team of the Institute of Chemical Ecology, including Silky Sachs, Marcus Nardin, and Ahmed Mohammed. This research was recently published in the journal Nature Communications. Now, one of the creatures inside March Mammal Madness was, of course, the marine otter, one of the many mucilatids, including, you know, the rivet gannet. But one of the things to remember about the marine otter is that it's not its cousin, the sea otter. The sea otters live around North America, whereas the marine otter is found around South America. And the South American marine otter was devoured by a roaming orc pod in March Mammal Madness. But turning our attention to the sea otters all the way up in North America, there's been some interesting research published about... Well, combining science with archaeology, because the sea otters uh, are known for smashing things to open them, including clams and mussels and mollusks. And when they do this, they leave behind remains, detritus. And scientists and archaeologists are teaming up to apply the same kind of technique to study the populations of sea otters in the regions all the way across the west coast of America over thousands of years to try and build together a picture of this species, its habitats, and how it sort of coped with changes in the climate around it. 
This research was a collaboration between the Max Planck Institute for Science of Human History, the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and the University of California, Santa Cruz, and was published in the journal Scientific Reports. It took over 10 years to combine all the data from observing sea otters using a whole bunch of archaeological methods to then analyse the remains that they left behind, and studying in particular what they call anvil stones, also known as emergent anvils. Now, when sea otters actually use these anvil stones to smash open the, their food, they actually have a particular pattern and way of using it. This is really interesting because it's different to the way that other creatures might use those rocks, or even humans. Now, considering that there was once around 150,000 to 300,000 sea otters scattered across the west coast of America, all the way from Baja California and Mexico to the northern Pacific Rim across all Canada and so on, all the way around, actually, to Japan. Now, when the fur trade kicked off, that really reduced the numbers of the species. In California in particular, the southern sea otter population was reduced almost down to 50 individuals. Now, it has been a massive focus for conservation. There's now around 3,000 in Southern California, but it's still considered a threatened species. But sea otters are very, very unique because they're the only marine mammal to use stone tools. They crack open shells while floating on their back, or they go along to some stationary rocks along the shoreline. They call anvils and use them to crack open these mollusks. Now, the, standing on the rocks is perhaps not the greatest strategy for you, as the marine otter found out in March Memoir Madness. But for the sea otter, it's pretty much how they get about 20% of their food. 20% of their food comes from cracking open mussels on these rocks. Now, when the scientists started looking at the anvil stones in particular that the sea otters were using, you could see a recognisable damage pattern which is very clearly distinct from what a human would use. So, for example, a sea otter prefers to strike the muscle in its hand against the points and ridges on the rock, and struck the rocks from a position in the water, so swung it through the water to hit it against the rock. If you think about what a human or a land-based creature would do, they'd approach it entirely differently. They would come from the top, and they would strike in a different type of, in the flat position more normally. So that means there's a kind of consistent damage pattern that you could then see in the shells that are left behind. So you can see the marks on the rocks themselves, but you can also see it in the broken mushroom shells. You can also also pick up the pawedness, the preference between different hands or paws that the sea otters prefer. And they were looking at a, a small random sample of shells. And I say random sample and small when they were talking about 132,000 individual muscle cells. And that means when they now pour through this trove, since they know what a muscle shell eaten by a sea otter looks like, which is a really specific type of damage pattern with two sides of the muscle cell still attached, but a diagonal fracture running along the right side of the shell. That looks nothing like how a human or any other creature would eat it, which means then if you go through the more or less fossil record or archaeological remains of these muscle shells, you can actually piece together a whole population map not just using fossil techniques, but actually looking at other fossils, the leftovers, remnants behind. And you can document the entire sea otter presence in the entire region, figure out where the populations were, what happened to them, how the climate around them changed and moved, and, and they adjusted to either hunting patterns or to the expansion of human settlements. And this enables the scientists now to trace the evolutionary behaviour, like tool use, which, to be noted, is very rare in the animal kingdom, especially marine mammals. This enables the scientists to trace that, the development of when that exactly started up. 
and shows the benefits of applying interdisciplinary techniques like animal archaeology to help give scientists more clues into the history and the development of species, how they change over time, and with the interactions with other species. So sea otters are using tools and have been using for thousands of years, and we can study this and understand how they developed and how their population has changed with the result of humans. There's some great work just published in the journal Scientific. One of the ways that you can lose in Marshmallow Madness is to be eaten, to be squished, but also to abandon the field of play. And if you are a starving creature, you might want to increase your chance of survival by taking a bit extra risk, going somewhere which you know is dangerous in order to get some food. And the idea behind this is called the starvation predation hypothesis. And there's a big area for animal researchers to study because you can get a really good insight into different types of animals behaviors some are more likely to in times of starvation or scarce food take that little extra risk that in good times they wouldn't just to make sure that they have a better chance at survival and this exact topic is something being investigated by a university of wyoming scientist just published in the journal ecology the research was led by brendan oates along with senior researchers from UW's Department of Zoology and Philosophy, like Matt Kaufman, and researchers at the US Geological Survey, like Jared Merkel. Now, they were investigating the behavior of moose. Now, moose are actually a competitor in March Mammal Madness, but in particular, they were looking at the way that moose changed their behavior to avoid wolves, particularly as the winter gets harsher and food becomes scarcer and scarcer. Now, wolves and moose are basically have a predator-prey relationship. It's the same between wolves and other big game species. But one of the big challenges is how these, especially large species, what people call big game, big creatures, how they interact with these wolves and how they fear them. And can this can drive changes in what type of food and where they will live. Now, we know, as you say, that hungry animals will tolerate the presence of predators at sort of some level. Moose have a different approach. Now, what they found in this study, which was over a five-year period, including 120 unique encounters amongst 25 individual moose and six wolf packs, they looked at what happened using GPS tagging both the moose and the wolves to understand how they behaved with respect to each other. They did all this in the Grand Teton National Park and the Bridge Teton National Forest over that long period of time. When they tracked it and compared it to the season, they found that the movements of the moose increased in early winter, especially after they'd encountered a wolf. They sort of moved away and tried to keep their distance from where areas where they knew where wolves were. Even though the moose didn't necessarily move from the preferred habitat, which is near streams and marsh areas, but later in the winter, when the moose were hungrier because food is scarcer, there was pretty much no change in the movement rates as wolves got closer and closer to the vicinity. Pretty much the moose, being what they were, were unwilling to move or abandon their preferred habitats following encounters with wolves, which means that they were more likely to take that risk, run that chance, rather than give up their preferred habitat, their place with nice food which they're familiar with. Now, the area which moose prefer, this swampy region, it actually has a, what they call a structurally complex behaviour. It's both a good source of food and an easy place to hide from wolves, which means that it may not be a clear, just a straight impact. 
But if you compare the behavior of a moose with wolves to that of an elk, which is the primary prey of wolves in the region, when an elk sees a wolf, they'll move. As soon as a wolf gets within about a thousand yards, even during winter, even in times of scarce food, they'll make a big dash just to get out of the general region which a wolf is in. And they abandon their preferred habitat just to make sure that they don't get eaten. And that is something that moose just don't do. Yes, they do move when wolves get within about 550 yards, but they don't still give up their territory. They just move a bit further away. And that shows a really interesting case of anti-predator behavior and how the different species of ungulates, moose and the elks, behave compared to the same predator, the wolf. Now, as we'll see in March Mile Madness, different species will take certain amounts of risks and others will flee more sooner than others. But if you're backing moose, this is good news for you because they are less likely to give up their territory in the presence of predators, particularly if it's in the middle of winter. We'll see if that factors in to this year's 2019 March Mammal Madness, but some great work out of the University of Wyoming, led by Brendan Oates. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From Seota's use of tools and studying them using archaeological methods to the behaviour of moose in the tundra, and even what happens in your brain when you smell something repulsive. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.